Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy's Show and Tell. Uh, this is Tom once again, and as you all know, Show and Tell is the show where we bring on a cool guest to talk about the cool thing that they are working on. And today's cool guest is none other than Caleb from the Rollless Podcast. And the thing that we're going to be talking about is his new game, Paris Gondo, the life-saving magic of inventorying. First game ever. Or First. should we say the release publishing, the release release design? It's, you got your, a, it's a work in progress. You got your imprint yet? You need your... Um, Michael's working on his game too, and he's trying to figure out, is it is it the RPG Academy or is it another imprint? So, <laughs> I think brand consistency is good, so okay. it's going to be the release something. But uh, yeah... I might even put my day-to-day job in there for, you know, anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. For anyone, for anyone who's in the real world who picks up this book and they're like, oh, we should hire this person. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, but anyway, the Caleb. All right. So, a lot of people on our podcast, they know about you. You stream on our channel regularly. Uh, you're, you're involved heavily with us. Uh, but for those who don't know, before we dive too deep into this game you're making, can you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and the Rollers podcast and how you fit into the tabletop RPG world? Uh, all right. Well, uh, first of all, my show, uh, my main show, because I got several now, including uh, the RPG Academy Film Studies, which I, I curate for the RPG Academy and sometimes uh, often produce. Uh, my main show, the Race Podcast, is the show of tabletop RPG fans across the channel, the pond, and beyond. Uh, it's proudly London-based. I am a proud Londoner, but I was not born in London, as you might tell by my accent, which is <laughs> not quite London. I was born in Belgium. Uh, my first language is French, and it's in Belgium where I was introduced to tabletop role-playing games Back in the mid nineties, but it took me several years because then there was no internet to find out how things work. So I got the book for Star Wars, the role playing game by West End Games, the second edition, the French translation. And it took me several years to work out what was actually a tabletop role playing game. I was just a Star Wars fan. And, uh, at some point, several years later, I met people to a theater troupe who did tabletop role playing games. So I started playing with them uh, quite a bit and studies didn't have time to play anymore uh met my wife uh got her to play role-playing games with <laughs> nice. her, which is how i got back into it by the way this month's episode is going to be with her with persephilia telling about her experience so if you want more details about that that's where to go uh continuing uh, my wife and i decided and made a lot of work to move to london to leave belgium where we were not quite happy and in terms of uh, ambition professionally that wasn't great so we moved to london i found a french-speaking tabletop rpg group there uh the la guilde des rollis francophones de londres then i engaged with other tabletop rpg club uh here in the uk and because uh, at least to move to london i had to pass english exams and that's how i got started listening to podcasts and one thing led to another meeting other groups thinking that, oh, I could do something about that very niche little bubble of French-speaking tabletop RPG fans in London. Uh, I started my show, The Release, and it quickly expanded to other clubs in London. And then I took advantage of travels to record in Barcelona with people who were there. And uh, yeah, because I my relationship with the TRPG community and the hobby... A lot of shows and individuals, and it's not a criticism, 
they are sort of focusing on something. So they, they're really into like our good friends from Effect RPG. They're really into free league and games. So they, all they do is about that. At the RPG Academy, you, you do different things, but you kind of centered on the US scene yes. a bit. And mm-hmm. for a while, you were about D&D a lot. Um, and it's, it's always about going far into horror RPG or special genre RPG or actual play RPG of, of certain type. And for me, what I love with Tabletop RPG, it's how it's a hobby which you can connect with other hobbies. If you have friends coming over, you can be baking for them. If you run a game, you can be playing music for them. You can draw as part of the game. Uh, when you're a Tabletop RPG fan, often you're fans for, of genre cinema and series. Like on the RPG Academy Discord, we discuss about WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So it's, I'm all about connecting things connecting the dots together and i think it's quite unique on the scene and i love connecting people and i love connecting myself to people and doing different stuff so from a show which was doing quite a lot of different things movie reviews going to the cinema interviewing people at convention traveling a little bit of actual play now i'm branching out to designing my own game it's it's so it's so true what you say too and i will say this for anyone listening that if you are if you have a podcast or if you're making something, uh, Caleb is a really good person to know and you should follow him on Twitter because I cannot tell you, all right, how many people Caleb has connected me with and I love it so much. And it's not me asking. He's just like, hey, Tom, uh, you should talk to this person. And, and it's so, it's, I'm so glad you're there for that because that is, I like talking to people, but I'm not the greatest at putting my name out here. So, like, you are so true that your podcast is about connecting people. I will say this, too. Like, I absolutely have fallen in love with the London tabletop RPG scene and community because of you and your podcast. Like, you've connected with me with so many people. And it's so it's so cool, like, that community over there that you have. And I'm jealous of it. Well, a big part of the released podcasts and uh, the side shows and everything I do is thanks to London. I mean, I am lucky. Things are, uh, for COVID reasons, uh, a bit different right at the moment, although the scene is still diverse and Brexit is certainly hampering things a bit. But a big part of the, the released is taking advantage of being in London where a lot of people pass through visits so a lot yeah. of episodes involve uh the first time i did it was a young adult novelist Amy carter who traveled from detroit to london to come uh, see some uh, harry potter sites and also she was on a book signing tour and i took advantage of that uh, i got guests from austria who visited me i got james damato and mel damato who came to london as part of their honeymoon in europe and when I noticed that on Twitter, I'm like, oh, you're coming to London. Hold on a minute. Do you want to be showed the sites? And would you have a, an hour or maybe less to spend on the microphone with me? So it, it's, it's this big crossroad uh, yeah. between the US, Europe and the world, really. And it's very exciting to showcase that and, and be part of that. That's why I'm here. Yes, for sure. And with that personality, you have definitely been, if you follow the Rollers podcast on Twitter, you have probably seen Caleb tweeting about this game and probably has responded to your random tweet with a link to his game. And so what we want to do is we want to talk about uh, 
Paris Gondo because I have recently of the last I would say last year especially I've started to really fall in love with smaller indie games I have found that this these are the type of games that I like uh, that are very much more story focused and creating worlds instead of um, just straight up uh, role playing or uh, doing going dungeon crawls or fighting stuff I like smaller games like this so let's talk about it so before we dive too much in it, and I make you give me give me your elevator pitch, I want to know, who is Paris Gondo? Uh, so Paris Gondo is an extra-dimensional being without a physical form because one day they realized that their physical form did not spark joy in them. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, they were uh, some type of monks in a pretty much European medieval setting, and at some point, uh, yeah, they, 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 they read the, about the adventures of various heroes and what they really were fascinated by was the description of the equipment of these heroes and their loot and how they packed it. And they become obsessed about that. And they starting arranging their own packages at the monastery, then the packages of other monks. And they become a specialist of that. And nowadays, they give advice across dimensions to adventurers who have a strong desire to declutter their loot and turn around their life towards a fulfilling experience. So very much a benevolent, like, multidimensional being. Uh, yeah. And yes. it's a parody, so I cannot be sued uh, okay. if there are similarities <laughs> with Marie Kondo. That's right. I wonder. Um, so then you kind of said a little bit about it. So then, all right, so give us the, what is the elevator pitch for your game? So it's a tongue-in-cheek homage to encumbrance rules and other tropes found in Dungeons & Dragons and other dungeon-crawling games through the lens of contemporary well-being advisors a la Marie Kondo. Uh, it's a story game. It's for three to six players. You can play a session uh, between two and three hours. The first one takes a bit longer, but when I was running it in person, we could play as much as three games within an evening uh, at our local club here. And uh, yeah, you start the game where most adventures end in tabletop role-playing games. At the end of the dungeons, you just defeated the boss of the dungeons and it's time to find some loot however you arrive in the dungeon with your own equipment now it's time to decide you cannot carry everything you want because encumbrance so you need to decide what you want to keep what you want to throw away and preferably Marie Kondo well, preferably Paris Gondo finding the reference number <laughs> Paris Gondo advice to keep things which spark joy in you so you make up your final inventory, you throw away some of your starting equipment, maybe your rusty broadsword, maybe some of your clothes. That happens. Uh, if people <laughs> say that the game is designed for the adventurers to end up naked, uh, it's a terrible lie. But depending on what you keep, the loot and your starting inventory, maybe starting inventory from other adventurers, you trade it between the players, you make up your final inventory, and then you're going to find out if you manage to survive on the way back in the dungeon uh, as a group, uh, whether you might perish alone in the dungeon on the way out because you were holding too much, which is a terrible thing. And once you manage to arrive home, uh, depending on what you kept, whether or not you will have a stimulating and invigorating experience for the rest of your days, or at least till your next adventure. 
Yeah, it's funny. The you think about any like I think about like a video game, RPG, or even a tabletop role playing game. And honestly, the the end after you beat the boss, it's very and you open up the chest. It's a brief moment, but it's so satisfying. It's like it's like a like two minutes of your game, and but it's like one of the best parts is that that instant gratification. It's like Christmas, but it's gone in a split second. And as I was reading through this, like your game, the whole premise is around this moment, this 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 moment of gratification, and so. I was like, "Oh, this is great! Ways to extend this this part." So that was it's it's interesting. Yeah, it reminds me. I'm a terrible holder when it comes to MMORPGs. When I was playing a, a bit Dungeons and Dragons online, I would keep all the gems, which I think are actually useless. <laughs> you cannot do anything for them, but uh, I would keep them and I would fill a little uh, mini guild chest uh, with that. But but yeah, it's a it's a good point you have, and actually, uh, quite a few people in playtest told me that. They were keen on using that. If you have an ongoing D&D campaign and you have troubles finishing it or for some reason, maybe someone uh, needs to leave, you know, move to another place and so on, or they're going to start a new job and won't be able to play with you anymore, you could use the game to conclude your, oh. your campaign, if you wish. Or what I've been telling also people... I didn't even what you, think about that. What you could do also is use the game to sort of come up with a, a legend or adventurers who were there eons before your adventurers and then you can go into their path to find objects they had there. They are your great-grandfathers who did stuff and you could build on that, create the hooks for a new adventure. Oh, that's awesome. So I guess I, the other question then is, so what inspired you then to create this game? What What made you, two things, so what made you like, oh, I want to make a game? And then also what set made you say, this is the game I want to make? So it's quite funny. Uh, I mentioned the release podcast. So the very first time, I'm not entirely sure if it's the very first time or the second time, but on episode two of the release podcast, uh, it was very chaotic, an episode we we uh, got together with friends. Uh, we had pizza. We tried to play a board game. It, it was Quite terrible as far as episode goes. Uh, I was experimenting things, but one of my friends, Akadosh, who uh, was a regular on the show, he mentioned Marie Kondo. So the first time I was told about Marie Kondo, or maybe the second time, it's recorded and it's on the show. So and he was telling, "Oh God, this this person." And it was before the the show on Netflix. I think it's yeah, and. And he mentioned that thing. Oh, yeah, you, you, Marie Kondo says you should have a stone which reminds you of your mother at home and you should throw away things which don't spark joy. And he thought it was quite funny. Uh, yeah, I was not entirely convinced, but it's interesting. A bit later, Persephilia, my wife, she got a copy of the life changing magic of tidying by Marie Kondo. And uh, I had a look. And uh, I thought, you know, it's a bit extreme, but it's interesting. And uh, it sort of reflects my philosophies with some stuff like I got from poker, the idea that uh, sometimes you need to fold, you know, is it worth continuing on that path or do I back off? And so this idea of getting rid of things. And right at the beginning, and uh, I got a, a segment in the actual game book, which is very close to that. There were four quotes from clients of Marie Kondo. And I was thinking that how 
how those quote would be hilarious, joking on, on my own, if you just took them and brought them into another setting. So it's not, the game itself is not making, for me at least, it's not making fun of Marie Kondo, but it's, it's changing its context. And that's what makes it very funny. And it's, it's more joking about the, the, the people surrounding uh, this practice uh, rather than the practice itself. But there were quotes like, oh, I would never have believed something could change me that much just by throwing it away. <laughs> and I just added Bilbo Baggins. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, oh, yeah, uh, things are much better now with my husband now that I got rid of all the stuff I don't like. Cecil Lannister from King's Landing. And it, it just... and. I thought it was funny. Then I thought, okay, I didn't really have the, I didn't start this like, oh, I want to make a game. I just had this idea. I thought it was funny. And then I was like, could I do a game with that? Or would I do it? As, well, you would have an encumbrance start, stat, of course. And then you would have an emotion stat, of course. And then you, what do you contrast that with? Well, the usefulness of the object and, and so on. One thing led to another. And then, uh, I did little index card and we we tried it quickly with Akadosh during our lunch breaks at work uh, not at work but we would meet for coffee uh, leaving our, our individual place of works and it was it was interesting and I thought yeah actually this this got legs this could be very fun I developed it a bit then I started writing down the rules I I, I had in my head and then then tested it with people and it really took a, a lot took up a lot of steam a little bit before covid happens and then when covid happened it was sort of on stall because i didn't know how to you use index cards so it's difficult to do that online or at, at first and then someone introduced me to miro uh, which is an interesting platform to play games a very simple one which was a way for me to run the game and from there uh Actually, COVID was an opportunity for me because suddenly I could run games at Origins. I could run games at a number of conventions which I could not have access to otherwise. So I run playtests for 100 people to this day already. And I'm going to run more de demonstration at convention, which I could not attend if they were not online like it's the case right now. So that's sort of the big arc for Paris Gondo. No, it's super interesting. It is a, it is definitely a unique game. I've never, I think that's, I mean, if you want to have a good uh, indie tabletop RPG game, we all know you have to, you got to find something that nobody else is doing. And I've, I've never seen anything like this. Um, so it's, and I'm a big fan. I have always said that one of my favorite parts of any RPG is magic items. So uh, getting to interact with magic items or just items in general is super cool. So what I want to do, though, is this is going to be a little bit different, the, the rest of this interview, all right? So then traditional show and tells. I actually want to go through, I was telling you this beforehand, I think this game is small enough, but it's it's where we can, I want to talk through each of these different sections, all right? Because I think that each section is a little bit different and really cool. So we're gonna. What we're gonna do is we're gonna. I'm gonna. We're gonna step through different parts of the book. We're not gonna read them verbatim or anything. I know. I just want to ask Caleb about them. So well, it's a play-based method. The play-based Gone Paris method, and it's got six steps. 
uh, which would help steps. you banish encumbrance forever. Actually, oh. I have seven because there's a step zero. Oh, there is. And that's the one I – so before we get into actual steps, though, the product that you have released so far on Itch as kind of like this playtest document, the first thing that you have, though, is about half of the book is this uh, this kind of table talk section it's like almost like a script and i've never seen anything like this before other than like you'll see like a page in each rpg like oh this is uh, this is mary and bob and they are playing an rpg and but this is a little bit different this is a much more detailed like a walkthrough of your entire game so can you talk a little bit what is this yeah, so at some point in the development in the, of the game, I happen into, it might have been a Kadosh again who introduced me to that, but there's a rather cool video by Kotodama Heavy Industries, who's a tabletop RPG publisher who publishes, uh, mainly Japanese tabletop role-playing games, uh, and translate them in English. And the video was specifically about replays. So replays are apparently very common, if not a standard, in Japanese tabletop role-playing games, which they talk, which they call apparently table talk role-playing games, so TRPG rather than TTRPG. Uh, but so a replay is a transcript of a full game session, and it includes people standing up. Uh, to fetch a sandwich or, uh, maybe not burping, uh, because people are much more polite than that. But it's, it's a complete transcript of a session which is barely edited. And it's a big part of the RPG culture in Japan. And it's a big part of the success of Call of Cthulhu in Japan. Actually, you know, it's, I, first of all, I was immediately fascinated because it is what we know now, which is kind of this boom online of actual play. You go there and you listen to actual play of D&D and then so many of them um, beyond Critical Role. You discover games which shows like she's a super geek and you listen to people playing and you are introduced to the game like that. This sort of culture existed in Japan way before the internet through text because this practice is much older. So According to Kotodama Heavy Industries, the common practice is that people on their commute on the train will read the transcript, will read the actual play of a session. Uh, usually it would take you around 45 minutes, maybe up to two hours. So you, on your journey to work and back from work, you will have finished reading this actual play. And then at the back of the book, you got the rules. If you enjoy the actual play, you can run the books. Uh, you can run the game. And uh, part of the success of Call of Cthulhu is that there are a lot of those replays, text, which you can buy, like zines. And it's it's just a game session. Like you're just listening to a podcast of an actual play. In Japan, you can buy transcripts of game sessions of your favorite gaming group, and you will read their adventures like you would read a, a small novel. So it attracted me for a number of reasons. First of all, I come from a generation and a place where we have a very deep relationship to Japan. So outside of Marie Kondo, I grew up on Japanese animation way, way before uh, Dragon Ball Z hit the US. Uh, we had stuff going on. We got European, Japanese co-production uh, when I was a child in the 80s. And then this become this huge movements when we all became teenagers with manga and we discovered 
more adult content for for Japanese stuff. And Japan itself got a uh, interesting relationship with Europe. Also, they often borrow stuff from from Europe. So immediately, I was attracted for that. Then second, uh, I I'm terrible at reading tabletop RPG rules. Uh, yeah. I really need to play it first before being able to run it. And it had really helps playing games like uh, The Gauntlet, for instance, uh, which often uh, soon is going to have The Gauntlet uh, Community Open Gaming on uh, June 23rd to 27th. So people should go check this out online. Uh, so actual play, they really help in audio format or video format. But in text format, you can gather, you get, get your speed and you can go to reread elements yeah. of what happened when you're learning a game. So I thought it was very helpful. And, and I would be very keen to see more games do that as a consumer. And then, um, the, the last aspect is that I'm a podcaster who did actual play. So I'm, I'm really into that. So it, it was, it was really, yeah, it really spoke to me. And I thought, okay, I really want to, to do that with my game. And also, let's be honest, uh, I got a game which is in a, a dozen pages of rules, maybe a bit more, 20 pages max. I think it's a weird format because it's not, it's way beyond the small game, one page RPG, and it's way smaller than, uh, uh let's say, uh, something like, um, Bluebeard's B- uh, Bride or Brindlehood Bay, for instance, that we, we both love. Uh, uh-huh. it's a bit too small. So it, it gives a bit of padding. I, I don't find it's padding in the, the bad sense, but it, it gives a bit of heft to the book, which is welcome. And, but at the same time, the book is front-ended with an instruction which says, so this is how it works. This is how, how it's inspired by a practice of tabletop RPG in Japan. But if it doesn't speak to you because you're not interested in actual play or a written version of actual play, skip it. If it does not spark joy, skip it and go it directly to the rules. Joy. Yeah, no, it's interesting because for me, it did not spark joy. All right. <laughs> so, no, it's because I'm not super... I, I mean, even though I run an actual play, that's different. Like, I, that's me playing that's me playing a game. I don't personally listen to actual plays because I'm, I'm unlike you, I like... I, I'm somebody who can absorb rules, and that's just kind of how I... How, I work and how I learn, I can do that. And I know, like you're saying, a lot of people can't and they having that resource there is really good. And I definitely appreciated your note there. That was, it was literally like, this is something extra that if you find it useful and if it sparks joy, here's this resource for you. If not skip to the end where if you want to just read the rules uh, and get right into it, you can do that. So I, I like having that flexibility there. Yeah, I would still say, however, uh, it's it's still a bit more than padding in the yeah. sense that having this replay sort of freed me. The the first version of the rules I wrote, I really tried to make them as short and synthetic as possible, really straight to the point and it kind of dry. So now, now you got the script bits, which help a bit, but I too, when I was writing the rules that on one hand, within the rules, I did not want it to burden it with saying things like, and when you do this, you should be funny. <laughs> or when you do this, you should do this this way. You know, tell things about the, the tone, uh, the substance matter, I think it's called, uh, because I really wanted the rules to be very clear. 
But if you take the rules of Paris Gondo, the life-saving magic of inventoring, it's really dry and boring. There's not that much to it. It's a little management system. So the replay still play a role into showing actually there are the rules, but it's what goes beyond the rules yeah. which matters, which I guess it's the case with any tabletop RPG, uh, including Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I, I find it fascinating, great. And then I lamenting at the same time how, uh, sometimes there's a type of role play which plays despite a system. But yeah, you, it's, there's more to Paris Gondo than the rule system. It's about embracing the idea and, and running with it and really riffing off uh yeah you got four stats you got three stats and an affiliated class uh you could say oh it's a good weapon that's it but if you start inventing a whole story about that weapon that comes from this legendary character and you start inventing a legend for this character that's really where the game shines and it was it would have been difficult to explain that within the rules so the replay still played that roles i think it's 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 cool and i think that i think it's definitely like you said useful too because this game is very much a uh very loose creative uh world building and like uh you're creating a story with and we all say like tabletop rpgs is shared storytelling but a lot of times it comes down to just interacting within a world and this is really a creative process this game so i think it's useful to see how people create it so, because uh, some people get stuck there. So, but what I want to do then is we just covered half the book. So let's go ahead and <laughs> let's talk about the other part and let's go through these different steps. So I want to talk about the steps of the Periscondo method. Okay. So step one, dungeon. Zero. Oh, zero. zero. Yes, that's right. We have a, we have a setup section it's and you have, you have gone through, you actually have done a whole lot more than a lot of RPGs that I have personally read you have a very detailed section here uh, so talk about your session zero and your setup section then it, it, sometimes it's difficult to to think where things were born exactly uh but uh, might have not sprouted from that but playing with the gauntlet was a very formative experience for me and i really appreciated the the culture there's there of using safety practices but not only uh, doing a, a number of things to uh, foster a good experience for everyone. And and so the, the setup is the session zero. It's a mini, mini session zero. And, you know, on podcasts, on advice, discussions about tabletop roping game, I've heard of session zero, things like the X card, uh, to death. And I agree with everything I heard, but really it took me to be playing with the gauntlet to... To really get it, uh, to not that I, I did not get it in terms of a concept, but it was difficult for me to implement at the table. And, and so what you find in the session zero here, it's not you should use this tool. And it's more like how you integrate that. It's a script you follow, you just read the script, but it, it moves all this stuff, the safety, the well being, the lines and veils. But rather than give you dry instruction, it becomes something which is part of the game because it's about well-being and turning your life over. So in character, Paris Gondo teaches us that individual invigorating and simulating experiences depend on the well-being of the whole group. And you, you're gonna, so you're going to explain that you got the X card, 
You got the Spark Joy card, which is uh, something people quite like, which is the op- sort of the opposite of the X card. It's a way for you to express that you're enjoying your time. Uh, then the sort of a lines and veil section. But it sort of set the tone of the game, start of agree on references. Okay, is it gonna be, it's gonna be cartoonish, but is it cartoonish like, uh, Amphibia or the old house and Gravity Force, kind of childish, children friendly, or is it gonna be more mature, like, I don't know, Archer or Rick and Morty? You could really go all over the place. So it's a good place for the players to agree of what it's gonna be like but at the same time thanks to the script i think uh, it makes it so in a rather somewhat smooth way and it's part of getting you into that world of paris gondo and it actually ends with the fulfillment ritual which is a kind of a mini meditation between the players and to really dive into the concept of oh you got objects and they make you happy. So you it's part of that segment to ask the players, okay, think about one object which you, player, fills you with joy and concentrate on that object. And it's sort of have everyone land into that world. And it's something I do with most of my tabletop roping games. Uh, with Star Wars, I have the players sing the opening credit of Star Wars together as a wow. way to, to make that break into the world you know in london you often play after work so you arrive you're stressed out you're in a board game cafe but it's it's kind of noisy there are five other tables with people playing dungeons and dragons next to it so having that little ritual for any table of role-playing game which you you adapt depending on the circumstances really helps people make that breaking point and get into the game yeah, no, I mean, it's, I mean, everything you said makes sense, especially you're, it's session zero. And a lot of times it's, we gloss over it, but it really is. You're like, you're already starting the world building process there. Like everybody is, like you said, getting into it. Also, uh, now that you say that about singing the Star Wars theme song and just this whole idea of a meditation thing beforehand to get everybody in the zone, that's a good idea. I'm going to steal that. I know. I know. Wow. It's copyrighted. You cannot steal it. You need to pay me for it. Okay. All right. That's why. That's. Yeah. It's. We steal everything in the tabletop RPG world. All right. Borrow, (laughs) borrow, borrow. Okay. Um, No. So let's talk about then. So we have our setup. Now we have our step one. This is the dungeon. This is a section where we are creating the the dungeon that the players have currently found themselves in and this is very much it's you have a rollable table but it's very rules it's very rules light i was getting some microscope vibes without like the just because i got the whole feeling of like hey we're just kind of talking about uh where we are uh so is this the type really what i wanted to ask you about this then is this the style of game that you prefer where it's just kind of a a conversational (laughs) conversational world building experience Tom, you know me. I really don't like this type of games. <laughs> oh, really? Really, I, I really don't like this type of games. And uh, you, you were saying that there are very few games which reminded you of Paris Gondo. Uh, I, I guess two exceptions. They are not exactly similar, but they were free-styling games, shared storytelling games, which worked for me. Uh, it's Sonya and Conan versus the Ninjas. And uh, Becoming, uh, which got a longer title, Tales of Heroic Drama or something like that. But 
those games are, are very structured and that really helped me out. So yeah, it's not my thing, the, the shared storytelling things, unless it's very structured. So hence the step in this one. And yeah, the dungeon. So you just need to come up with, okay, we are at the end of a dungeon, but you have a little flashback of what is this dungeon? Okay, what does it look like? Oh, is it a classic medieval fantasy stone and mud and this sort of things uh, dungeon? Or is it more Curse of Strad? Or is it a spaceship? Or is it uh, a library? It could be anything, really. And the first time I was running the game, it was really free form. And, uh, but I was there in person to, to encourage the players to say, okay, that's our second session of the evening now. So what are we going to do now? Are oh, we going to do a non-Euclidean dimension uh, Call of Tulu? All right, let's do this. But I realized that, uh, again, between making a sentence and saying, and it really should, could be anything you want, I in my experience, it helps more to give options to people. And then people can go counter to those options or go along. But there's nothing worse for me than starting with a blank page. So hence the, the table, which are just prompts, really. And the prompts are as much there for you to use them as for you not to use them, but seeing by the prompts that it sets the tone. Like some prompts, prompts which are quite popular... Uh, so the prompts, the, the table, you first run a, an adjective for the dungeon. So it could be, uh, horrific or submerged. The second one, it's a place. Uh, and the place you've got a, uh, I don't know, a citadel, a city, but also a theme park, a library, a ship, which could be a boat or it could be a spaceship. So, you know, you start to open option. It could be a convention. So the new people are like, what? We're doing a dungeon crawl, but a convention center? And fourth, it's the buses. And the two most popular, and each time I'm a bit afraid our player is going to react to that, but 100% of the time so far they reacted uh, positively. Uh, the boss of the dungeon could be could be a genius, could be a plant, could be a, an animal, but it could also, also be a gatekeeper or a Karen. Oh, nice. And, and, and people, when they see that, even if we don't do the Karen, it set them in a state of mind. They're like, okay, okay. It could literally be anything. anything. It's really, again, Rick and Morty, not necessarily the, uh, full language part, but yeah, we can go completely off the rails with that. And, uh, going back to the replay, what, what something which I, I find funny with the replay is that we didn't use the table because in the dungeon section, it says, well, what's a dungeon? You can freeform it. If you have trouble freeforming it, we've got a table for you, which you can roll onto to get some prompts. But otherwise, go free. And in the replay, it says, uh, immediately I had a player, oh, I can picture this thing. It's slime and ooze everywhere with gelatinous cube all over the place. And in the replay, I, I had the description saying, Calum sets aside the t dungeon table, the, the dungeon generator table, which he was about to explain. And I, we don't use it in the replay. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny too, because I would definitely, I want to play this game super serious now and make the most serious dungeon. I'd like, really like to hear people do that uh, and do a, a horror version, um, <sighs> but like take it seriously. I already played it in a Call of Cthulhu sort of setting and again, science fiction. Uh, you just reskin uh, your, your six 
character classes. We're going to come to that uh, later. And uh, I think it would work. And, you know, running the game, uh, I had some feedback, people not reading it, telling me when I was sending a copy for, for promotion purpose, telling me, oh, it's not my thing. I don't see the interest beyond the joke. But, you know, it started as a joke. But really, running the game, I found out very interesting things in terms of storytelling, including the dungeon and what comes later, is how you find out the story as flashbacks. And the world and the people and the story is happening around you. And you're finding out things which are sometimes deep about the character through the objects that they, they keep on their person or they decide to get to throw away. So... It's quite fascinating, and I'd really love to play a serious take one day. Yeah. Or hear one, even better, not being involved. I'm very curious to hear people play actual play. If anyone out there is interested in in recording something, uh, let me know. I will send you a free copy, and I will promote your actual play uh, to death. Yeah, it's it. You make me. It, it, you got the wheel spinning because I'm running right now a really grim, dark, forbidden lands game um, for my home group, and. Who knows, we may throw this in there. But, okay, but you mentioned something, and this is a perfect segue. So the people who occupy this this game, all right, this next step is the party. This is where we are creating the adventurers that are at the end of the dungeon. And you have, basically, you've got some classes, and this is where everybody gets their class, and they get their starting items. And uh, my question here is, uh, you have these predetermined classes, all right, but there's there's no warlock. <laughs> why didn't you all right so I, I know i say that jokingly but so there's no I, I there's i want my warlock but uh so is there when you have you you're building these characters and you have these predetermined classes uh is the game meant to like always use these classes or like can you make your own kind of class to use well technically you could make your own so so the first thing about the classes so the, the, you got the six classes and they yep. I picked them because for me, first of all, six, it's a D6, which uh, was quite convenient. Oh, okay. uh, second, uh, for me, they, you know, they, what I tell people when they pick their classes, I tell them there are mechanical differences between the classes and you're familiar with the tropes of those classes. So we've got the wizard, the rogue, the bard, the fighter, the cleric, and the barbarian. But really, they are, they are starting points and you can reskin them however you want. So you could definitely go uh, your wizard and it's uh, your classic Rincewind or Gandalf wizard and the objects are could be fitting, although the, the starting inventory objects are there also to sort of set a tone. So if you were yeah. playing seriously, you, you should overlook that a bit. But I think it's, again, it could work that true by agreeing on things during the session zero step. But yeah, the... The wizard, for instance, uh, like the barbarian, he's got a souvenir skull mug. Uh, he's got a uh, close-fitting loincloth. Uh, the wizard's got a first-level spell book, which, of course, is not very useful because it's only first level. Uh, they got a old-fashioned, out-of-fashioned uh, magic staff and this sort of things. But what I tell people, pick a class which inspires you to riff off. And you can yeah. turn them into whatever you want. So your your warlock, you could take any class and call, uh, they're actually they're a warlock. And you could even riff on that and say, they're a warlock, but people think they're a cleric and really annoys the hell out of them. And like, no, 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 I'm not a cleric. I'm not, a, I'm a warlock. I'm, I'm wearing this cross, but it is not related. It's just a style. But like wizard, we had an accounting wizard in a game. <laughs> 
So they, okay. they rename, they rename all the objects in order to fit that description of an accounting wizard. So the first level spell book became a binder with accounting in it. Uh, I don't know the, the other stuff, what they were. Uh, I played a metalhead. I took the barbarian and the metalhead was. So the barbarian was a metalhead who was transported from a music festival. So instead of a gourd stolen from the bard, he had a bottle of whiskey and uh, their souvenir skull mug was a, a bong or whatever you want. The, the only, it's actually said in the rules that you are encouraged to reskin them. The only thing you are discouraged to change is the stats of the objects. The and, stats, yeah. and, that's one thing that's a bit my frustration running the play online at conventions so far is that for reasons the first session especially online take more time i think it's part because of the tool i use people tend to write complete description of those objects so at that session at that moment people can type in a few keywords about the object if you play in person around the table and you got dry erase cards people will write three words because you cannot fit more if you're on a computer, people are each, you got a keyboard, yeah, yeah. They, they are writing a complete paragraph for each of their objects. So where I'm going with that is that when I was playing in person, we could run several sessions within an evening, and what would always happen was the first one was very classic medieval fantasy, and the second one because people knew the objects, understood the system, the point based, which are not explained in step two. You get the object, but how it works, the rules. It's not really explained. It's onboarded along the steps. Uh, once you play the second or a third time, you understand much better how it works and it's much easier for you to riff off and do that serious version or do that version in space and change things without too much problem. So you could do, you could do whatever you want with those classes. We had a penguin bard. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we, uh we and again the replay is there to also encourage people to to do this sort of things we had an emo uh, rogue and uh, uh, i wanted to wait add one aren't f- all rogues emo i guess so but this yeah. one was especially oh, super. emo okay gotcha and but he had his redemption when his french was cut so uh spoiler <laughs> alert but no i was getting so many i was thinking about the i was thinking about uh your eventual future kickstarter hopefully for this game and i was already thinking about all the stretch goals could just be new decks of cards for each class man it's just... listed at the end of the book future kickstarter two additional classes oh, so yeah. i got my so, two classes so many kickstarters we'll sell uh, this way you can all right this is my my idea so i'm gonna get some royalties here we'll do a license pack you know people can subscribe up subscribe for a season and they'll get a new cards every month okay but you know what? i'm thinking about that on one hand uh the game itself you encourage people to risk in the cards but the more i think about it uh, as stretch goals uh it's a it's a bit i mean it's uh, i guess it's a form of human nature uh i think i will do decks of cards which are pre-made for yes. science fiction pre-made for horror pre-made for other settings despite the fact that people could just do it themselves uh you you could definitely risk in it and could definitely be uh yeah alternative decks could definitely be something uh you would see in, uh, as a goal I to love unlock. It. I love that. That's just that 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 to me I like I like that. So I don't know that sparks joy. So all right, so all right, so now we get into some more of the meat. Step three. This is the loop. So you get to the end of your dungeon. You now get two blank 
cards, all right, right? Two blank ones, and now we finally get to roll, okay? And we get to create a, we get, each player gets to create two pieces of blue. So what are the, what are the stats here? You get, what are the stats, and then what do they mean for the game then? So first stat, obviously, uh, it's encumbrance. So you roll a d6 for all the stats. So encumbrance, uh, maximum of six. Uh, depending of, going back to the previous step, depending of the class you take, you can carry more or less. So a wizard, if I remember correctly, can carry up to 12 points of encumbrance. I think the barbarian goes up to, yeah, 18. Yeah. 18, yeah. So, and, and you got the other classes in, in between. So, your, if you roll a six on an object for a wizard, that's going to take a lot of space. And, uh, there's a little table. There's the, uh, Gone Paris classification table, which will give you pointers to come up. So, yeah. The loot, you roll 4d6. The first one is your encumbrance score. So you do that for each of your two objects. The first one is your encumbrance score. The second one is the usefulness. The third one is the emotion. And the fourth is the affiliated class. So encumbrance, it's how much space it takes into your inventory. Usefulness is how much it will help you survive as a group on the journey home to leave the dungeon. Uh, emotion, well, it will define your chances to have a stimulating and invigorating experience for the rest of your days once you manage to get home or not. And finally, the affiliated class, it tells you if uh, this object was made specifically for a wizard, a rogue, a bard, a fighter, a cleric, or a barbarian. And with those very dry things, the players, because that's the exciting part, are supposed to come up with a cool evocative name, like the gold cast slippers, of Midnight Pantry Red, uh, which are slippers which were designed by a uh, dwarf king who uh, wanted to go into the fridge at night, but his mother would not let him. So he had these gold cast slippers. So they are not weaved or covered in gold. No, they cast in gold. So they are very encumbering, but they are very useful also because they are very uh, silent. So it's perfect to go at night in your fridge. Uh, that's something which a player created during a session. Uh, so yeah, yeah, uh, and you got the tables which give you pointers, uh, so for you to know. So, uh, one encumbrance that's a ring, that's a pendant, that's a nicely fitting shirt, or it's something which moves on its own, maybe a droid or an animal, but one we would follow or your every orders. And at the very bottom, you got a six, that's a piano or the arc of the Covenant from Indiana Jones, <laughs> or it's uh, maybe it's an animal or a droid, but one who keeps going in the opposite direction where you ask them to. So that would be an encumbrance of six. You got the usefulness, encumbrance of one. Well, you see, I've got this stone, which reminds me of my mother. Uh, that's not very useful. I mean, you could still... It's, you could still break a window with it or throw it at your enemies, but yeah, it's, it's a stone, really, that stone which reminds me of my mother. Um, you got the emotion. Uh, one, it's mass-produced, very common, so you're not very attached to it, or it's ugly, or it belonged to someone you really didn't like, uh, someone who was really uh, kind of infamous, uh, like, I don't know, uh, a YouTuber who got cancelled recently. Uh, 
a tree in emotion, something like that stone, which reminds me of my mother. It has a tree in emotion. Uh, but what's important with emotion, you come up with a description. The emotion would apply to whoever carries the object. So if I give away the stone will remind me of my mother, Marta, uh, to somebody else, they need to come up with their own explanation why it's worth three. Either you make up something which is, oh, it belonged to a famous person, then that's why it's valuable. If it's more personal, like it, be, it reminds me of my mother, Marta, the other person, when they got the object, they can say, oh, actually, my mother's name was Marta too. You kind of, so this kind of segues into this next section, which is you talked about trading. Before we jump into there, I do, I love these rules in the sense that I like the whole idea of you roll these, you roll and you get your stats and then you get to describe. I was just thinking about all the different items that you could make. So like, for example, for me, all of a sudden I was thinking about like, you get a usefulness. All right. It's a six. Okay. And then the affiliated class is a bard. So all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is going to be a guitar. Okay. And like you think about, oh, this would be great. But then you could also like, I mean, if you got a usefulness of one, all right, and then the affiliated class is a barbarian, you could also then pick like a guitar. But it's just like, so these all these different things that I was, it's it's really fun, like creating these these items. I think you got a good system for making these. So. I think something miss, uh, don't, don't realize, my, my favorite bit. So people are happy when they roll the affiliated class that they have. It's, it's kind oh. of boring, actually, and yeah. you design an object for yourself. What's really fun is when you roll an affiliated class for someone else in the group, because sometimes you roll affiliated class for <laughs> adventurers who died. Maybe we don't have a cleric, and we used to, but he's not with us anymore. But what's really fun is if you roll something with good stats, like a good usefulness, and uh, for, I don't know, uh, yeah, a, a, a barbarian, and you come up with the most ridiculous object, the most ridiculous description, but the barbarian, the other player, they will have to keep it <laughs> and to use it and explain how they're barbarian. So you, you could come up with, okay, it's an encumbrance of two, usefulness of six, emotion of four. Okay. So that's, uh, the tutu of raging ballerina, uh, from the Russian orchestra. <laughs> And you come up with this description that this was this raging ballerina who roamed the plains and practiced a scorched earth policy while dancing around in a pink tutu. And, and, and the barbarian will have to wear the tutu. Yeah. The other thing cool, the other thing I was thinking about too is that if I'm playing like a fighter. All right, and then I'm creating my loot, and I I roll for it, and I have a wizard loot. I'm gonna make this wizard's loot sound so cool, and I hope it's a super cool usefulness because in the next section I'm gonna want to trade this with the wizard to try to get some of his other loot. And I know it's not a trading game, but I was just thinking about like, oh man, I could totally play this fighter power broker kind of guy. So, but let's talk about. So you have your step four, the life saving magic of inventory. We have all of our loot. We have our starting loot. We're at the dungeon and it's time to go it's time to go be right before going home all right so what is this next what is this next section we have this giant pile of loot what are we supposed to do with it well you've got too much you got loot you got your starting inventory and your starting inventory is already filling your encumbrance uh in 99.9 percent of, of the classes or maybe 100 percent so you have to part with some objects so uh, you need to decide what you're going to throw away or what you're going to keep. No, and you're even encouraged to travel as lightly as possible because depending on your encumbrance, 
and how much you can carry, it will also impact your chances of leaving the dungeon. So, so suddenly you need to come to say, okay, uh, my, uh, my wizard has got this unreadable stone tablet from their starting inventory. It's useless, but it's got an interesting emotion, but it's very encumbering. Well, I need to get rid of it. And you leave it in the middle of the room of the dungeon. And what's important in the game, again, that's where the replay is important, is that you, the player describes okay, the wizard's been working for ages on trying to decipher this unreadable stone tablet, but you see he's got a... Uh, <laughs> he's crying a bit as he's getting rid of the stone and he hopes it's going to be a good choice. So at that point, with what's being rolled with the loot and what people are... So you start trading between players. You say, okay, I did... You, you found this uh, war accordion for barbarians and I'm a barbarian and actually I got this uh, magic D20 of the great wizard Matthew Mercer. Uh, would you be willing to trade with me? Because the, the thing I failed to mention, the affiliated class has got a, an impact. When you have an object of your class, the usefulness is doubled. So something which is just three becomes a six. Something which is six becomes a twelve. So it's it's actually very impactful. And it's in the interest of the group to pass along the objects in order to, to make everyone as useful as possible. But there's a tr strategic choice because you're like, okay, do I carry more, but it puts me in danger? Do I go for the objects which are useful or do I go for the objects which are emotional because they are rarely the same? Uh, do I want to improve my chances to survive the dungeon all my chances of having a stimulating and invigorating experience till the rest of my days if I manage to escape the dungeon. And all of that, the trade, the exchanges, the hesitations, the dramatic choices, the change of my art, players are encouraged to role-play. And again, the replay, I was extremely happy with the players I had who were amazing. We got... Uh, Sengis Blue, we got uh, Ursid Dice, a friend called Simon, and Jane Hermiston. Uh, Jane Hermiston and um, uh, Matt Ursid Dice are both game designers as well. We're going to go check their work. Uh, they they riffed off and they role played very well in that step. So it's it's where, you know, all this thing I explained the rules, it's quite fascinating how you discover the story of those characters in hindsight and how relationships develop between characters oh the bard got a steamy love letter or the bard gets rid of the steamy love letter because they decide it doesn't matter for them anymore okay my wizard goes to pick up the steamy love letter why are you picking the steamy love letter well actually <laughs> my mother wrote it and i'm a bit embarrassed that she was a fan of the bard but it's all I have left of my mother, so I That's... want to keep it. <laughs> That'd be very unfortunate if that was all you had left of your mother. Um, no, it, it's, it's really cool. I think it definitely lends itself to creating these really cool role-playing moments, like, like you said. And also, I love a good trading game. And I know this is not, hey, in of itself, it's not a trading game. This is an inventorying game. But it was just, uh, I was just thinking about all the fun stuff that I could do. You know. It's a trading game, you know. Okay. It, it's kind of the, the the core segments are really creating the objects, and you could use that part as a standalone to create 
interesting objects for other games. Uh, I think to come up with ideas uh, like the the loot uh, people would find at the end of a D and D dungeon. But uh, yeah, the the trading part is where the fun is. You just said it. All right, so this is a trading game. All right, I think we have our next big, massive, multi-billion-dollar CCG. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. This is the new magic. All right, we're gonna make all sorts of cool. Im- we're gonna make all sorts of cool items, Caleb. Okay. Works for all me. Right. I, I got, by the way, all the playtests I run online. I, I've got a, uh, I got a separate mirror board where I keep all the objects. So at some point, I need to start tweeting each of them. <sighs> But I've got all the objects which were created online. I've got them all. Nice. That's that's you need to. You're hoarding them. Okay. So that's right. that's around two hundred objects in my little oh, wow. hoard. So I'm actually hoarding on the side. That's not really <laughs> oh, good. Time time to time to use the method. Okay. But now we get to the step five. This is the journey home. This is where we actually get to roll some dice and use our stats for what we these things we've created. So. I guess what I want you to do then is, so how do you, what is the journey home? How do we get home? How do we get out of this dungeon? So based, so your your, your characters, they don't have stats per se, but their inventory is what gives them stats. So depending of how much you can carry and how much you're actually carrying, you have an encumbrance factor, which is a bonus or, yeah, a bonus uh, or a ze- it's zero a bonus on a saving throw against uh, a lethal horde so you could perish alone uh, get stranded alone because you were carrying too much you've got the random encounter roll again it's a saving throw you need to roll under the total usefulness of your final inventory so you make the sum of all the usefulness of all your objects including the doubled uh, usefulness when it's uh, the right affiliated class so you need to roll under that and actually it's uh, it's uh, it's not an individual one it's uh, average party usefulness so everyone in the party need to roll under the average usefulness of the group and each roll under or equal to that average counts as a success each roll above that counts as a failure if there's more failures than successes the whole group got stuck in the dungeon or killed in the dungeon. And uh, the funny bit is, as part of the random encounter, each player needs to describe what happened. So the, the, the idea is, if you roll the success, the question is, okay, we ran into a danger as we were trying to leave the dungeon. Thankfully, you saved us using one of your objects. Tell me what happened what object you used and how did you use uh, save us? Oh, uh, I saved us by, um, we run into a group of goblins who are fans of romantic novels and, uh, in the, in a way to send them away, I have them read the steamy love letter from my mother and they were really moved by that and they let us go. So that's how you would describe a success. If you had a failure, I say, okay, you put us in a terrible danger because of one of your objects. What happened? Oh, well, I was carrying around uh, the glitter armor of that famous bard and it attracted... uh, a swarm of bloodthirsty bats. And in that case, I ask another player to explain to us how they save us from the bats 
using one of their objects. So yeah, the, the resolution is, is about the description and failures can be as fun to describe as successes, uh, in, uh, in that case. Absolutely. So we've now, we've, we've, we've gone through our random encounters and we have, we've now got home. And this was the emotion, step six, emotional epilogue. And this is one of my favorite things too, because it's literally, it's one dice roll. All right, it's a D. You roll a D twenty, and you, and this is you've you've made it out. Are you satisfied? It does your life have fulfillment in the items that you have brought out? With a a failure, you are not satisfied. You get to talk about why. But then, if you are successful, you are fulfilled. And you get to talk about why. So, talk. Tell me a little bit about what was the what's the purpose of having this emotional epilogue to capstone this game. I mean, it's the, you know, how do you call that in English? Clé de voûte. You know, it's uh, the stopstone of your arch. If it's not there, everything falls, uh, falls apart. It's, it's Paris Gondo. It's all about what sparks joy. So the conclusion of everything is whether or not what you kept sparks joy and if it was fulfilling. And by the way, you could have been stuck in the dungeon. You could have died in the dungeon. You can still have an emotional episode, <laughs> okay. which is positive. You can, Find out that your afterlife, afterlife actually is fulfilling thanks to one of the objects you kept and took with you in the afterlife or in that corner of the dungeons, which is damp and dark, but you're still very happy about having that D20, which belonged to Matthew Mercer, which you, you can play yeah. on your own, or maybe you, you introduce the goblins to Dungeons and Dragons, uh, using it. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's it, a fun little way to end the game, I think. Yeah, and what's nice that you have a, a round, and each of these steps, what I always say, what's important is to involve the objects, it's about the objects. Yeah. So uh, if and so if you failed at that, it's interesting to think about what objects you left behind in the dungeon, which oh. had an emotion score, which could have saved you the, on that steps, and you're like. Yeah, yeah. Actually, my wizard abandoned his unreadable stone tablet in the dungeon, convinced that they would never decipher it. And then one day, as they were home after this big adventure, surrounded by those wonderful objects and so on, it dawned on them. Oh my God. The way to decipher that t tablet was this. But you don't have the tablet anymore and you uh -huh. cannot decipher it anymore. You cannot recover it. And, and that's why you had this emptiness in your heart, this sense of underachievement for the rest of your days. And if you're the barbarian, maybe it's the souvenir skull mug which you left there. And when you come back home, your, your mother is like, or your brother is like, you, you don't have this souvenir skull mug which I brought you back from raiding those foreign nations. What, what did you do with it? Oh, I threw it away in the dungeon. What? And then you, you fell off you fell apart with your brother because of that. You didn't have that. your skull mug. You didn't have your skull mug. <laughs> it's the little things. It's so, you know, it, it is, it's a, it's a cool way. I like games that have systems that where there is a, in, in a kind of a, it's simple where you just roll the dice and you get to describe it, but it's still a, it feels like a, it's a mechanical device used to finish the game. It's not just this loose, like 
we're at the end of the session and I'm just like to one of my players, oh, so uh, tell me about the, the next five years of your life that we don't ever get to, we don't get to see. Tell us where you wound up. Now you actually get to roll a dice. You see like it kind of gives you a trajectory where to go. Yeah, so, and well, uh, what I, I, as I as I was saying, uh, I, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of GMless game and freeform games, but I like those which are very structured, and give you a clear role. And you know, if I was making a comparison with sports, I, you know, baseball is not a popular sport in Belgium. There, there's been a, a fashion for it, but I, I always felt better playing baseball because you have a role at a certain time. And it's sort of an individual task which you do for the team. So you hit the ball with the bat, you catch the ball, or you run. While and there's no exchanges, negotiation going on. While as a kid playing football, because I was not uh, the the most sport uh, fluent and uh, I was a bit shy as a kid, uh, socially awkward. Uh, in football or soccer, you're like. Give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. I'm here, here, pass it, pass it. And there's this negotiation going on. So games like, I don't uh, know, I haven't played Microscope specifically, but games where you share the narration, it, it reminds me also of my work where you are, okay, I got this idea, what do you think of this idea? And you enter this sort of negotiation of whether or not it's a good idea, whether or not you're encroaching another person's idea. What I like with Paris Gondo and other similar games is that you design your adventure you design your object. People have somewhat little say with that, but it's it's okay. It's agreed. It's a social contract. But then those things interact with one another and you build upon what you each did. But you don't need to negotiate what's the way forward. You just agree on the tone and the references in session zero, but then you have your little own sand playground in which you play which interacts with the others. Yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting game. Like I like freeform games. Like that's my style of games. I really like those sort of games. So I think this really does kind of fit right there. And we will definitely need to I'll definitely need to play it with my Ghost Assault Marsh crew. We've done other little indie games when Thomas tr- decided that he doesn't feel like running Dungeons and Dragons tonight. He'll he'll do something different. So we'll definitely need to do that. But what I wanted to ask you now is as we kind of wrap up and we've kind of alluded to all this. So right now the game is available on Itch where people can go get this playtest document. And it does feel it's not a it's it's a it's a very simple structure right now. There's there's no art. It's just text, but it still feels really f- complete and fleshed out. Well, but the so- game the game is complete. Yes. Uh, the game had even a professional editor who's Chris S. Sims who did an amazing job. Uh, oh, Chris gotcha, who, yeah. who worked on the the PHB the player handbooks yeah. for 3.5 4th edition and 5th edition. He also worked on Acquisition Incorporated, Dungeons and Dragons, and he did a fantastic job. So the text, it's done, it's finalized, yeah. and everything you need to play is in the game. So the game is ready. Yeah, and I got that feeling too. Like reading it, the the information flowed in the right way. Um, everything was just seemed like it was. It was just text though. But so what's next then? It's on itch right now. What is your what is your goal for what is your goal for Periscondo in the next next few months or year? So my my goal when I released that was to fundraise five hundred dollars, uh, which would not cover completely, but would help me cover the cost of a graphic designer. We reached that. We are five hundred and sixty-one, 
uh, the game is still there uh, for you on sales at half price, uh, just for five dollars. But we we've got the five hundred dollars, so I've got a contract signed already with a graphic designer. Actually, I could enhance it here. Uh, it's Francita Soto, uh, who uh, was a very talented graphic designer from uh, Chile, and uh, she already started working on the game. I haven't seen her, her work so far. I'm very excited to look at that. So she's going to make it that even more legible, even more beautiful. It should integrate. I already purchased art for the cover made by Buddy Hartley, which I love. It Not only in terms of style, it really hits what I wanted, which is kind of graphic designy. Yes. Uh, Buddy is from Australia, but he lives in the Netherlands. And there's something Dutch about his style, I find. You know, I grew up in the Benelux. Uh, which I really love, not only, but going into his Instagram, what he does is so fitting for Paris Gondo because it's characters surrounded by objects, sometimes drawings of only objects, which are, are just spot on with what I wanted. So the plan, I already have the front cover and the back cover art from Buddy purchased, and I want to purchase more art to include. So that's wow. going to be our next fundraiser, which will be to pay for the art. So we are really paid for the graphic designer the process is that the graphic designer gonna use uh, we're gonna use existing art by body because it's just really fitting i'm gonna identify pieces of art we want to use in the game and i'm gonna go back to body and tell him okay these are the pieces we selected uh how much would it cost and when i have this cost we're gonna run the campaign to at least in part pay for that because right now I'm unemployed. Uh, my plan was to pay for that myself, but uh, I, I just cannot afford to do that at the moment. So we'll have a beautiful laid out, professionally edited, professionally graphic design with gorgeous art by Buddy uh, as a book uh, on itch. And then around a year later, the plan once we've done that, is to go to Kickstarter or maybe Game on Tabletop, which is an alternative platform I recommend, which will be, again, the game is ready and complete. We're going to add more stuff. We're going to have an expanded edition, but it will be with the objective of printing copies uh, and send them to the shelves of friendly local game stores, but also make it possible for people to purchase, well, a print of the book, but more importantly, uh, things like dry erase printed cards of all the decks uh maybe uh, i need to check what are the options maybe post it like notepads for the looted items so you can fill them and then keep them uh, on the side or maybe they will be dry erase uh a, a, a mat with the the x card and the spark joy card and the, the picture of the stone which remind me of my mother uh like a kit really like uh yeah. resting pieces which as it's jenga tower or a few games nowadays which are kind of at the boundary between a board game, a story game, and a role-playing game, make it possible for people who wish to to purchase the game with all the physical elements to play with their friends without having to bother to to print it themselves, to cut the cards, or maybe laminate them or anything of that. You just got your game and you can buy it. And yeah, maybe there will be bo- booster for different uh, settings. For sure. And I'm excited for it. Like I said, uh, this is my style of game. And I will say this. I'll echo what you said. I love the art for this, the cover for this. I said this when you first released it. Almost like, I almost, I want to say like a year ago at this point. It is, it is, it's, it's very, like you said, very graphic designy. It's very, it's very, it's got a very 
distinguished art style to it. It's not, it's very unique and it's very cool. I like it a lot. So. And Body does his own games, which I recommend to check out. He does Slow Quest and a bunch of different things, which you can find mainly on Instagram. And yeah, but his style is lovely. Like the picture I selected for the cover, it's kind of a troll covered with object with a big bag which has a hole in it so you got coins falling from the bag he's got a jar with a face in the jar and <laughs> different weapons and daggers it's around his ankles it, it's, it's so it's all over the place it's very cool no so definitely for sure definitely go check out a periscondo it's so cool uh uh, Caleb has put a lot of hard work into this. So once again, Caleb, where can where can people go to find out about the game then? So uh, you can go to itch.io. Uh, you will find me there at RollistPod. So I use RollistPod everywhere, all the platforms. So that's R-O-L-I-S-T-E-S-P-O-D, uh, itch.io. Uh, if you type Paris Gondo uh, on each year, you, you will find it. Otherwise, you can go on the website of uh, my show, uh, the show I produce. We've got a brand new website, which I'm quite proud of. So, rollistpod.com. And there, there's even a header for Paris Gondo with a link to our store. And you can even purchase directly the game from the website. There's a, a widget uh, which will take you to, uh, to each year. Uh, and yeah, and uh, if you're a streamer, reviewer, or if you cannot afford the game, I did not work out how to make community copies yet. Uh, but if you're interested in the game and for uh, reasons like me, uh, you are in a difficult spot financially at the moment, feel free to let me know and I will send you a, a free copy. I mean, I, I don't want, yeah, I, I think, you know, that's beautiful with the tabletop RPG community. Clearly, people, purchase games like that in large part to support the designers of the games the game is currently at five dollars so the text only version will be ten dollars and then the 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 version with the the art will be a bit more expensive but there will be a sale as well right now it's just five dollars one somewhat important thing to point out is that if you purchase now the text only version the cost of the text only version which you buy will be deducted from future purchases of the fully laid out with art version. So yeah, there's no reason to wait for the full version if you want it to come out. Uh, actually, buying the Texony version will help that happen faster. But uh, a big thank you to all the people who purchased the game and left a big tip. Uh, people purchased it for $20 because they just wanted to support it and have it come out as soon as possible. Uh, so thank you so much mm-hmm. uh, for that and if you cannot afford and you're interested and you want to support the game uh, feel free to to contact me via Twitter or via the website absolutely definitely go check it out like like Caleb like said it's only five it's only five dollars I told my wife um Even though Caleb sent me, he sent us a free copy. Uh, I told my wife, I'm like, you can't buy it. No coffee, no coffee, no fancy coffee today. I'm gonna buy an RPG. All right. So um, it's it's the price of a it's a price of a double shot of espresso. All right. It's it's good. good, Yeah, and for go check it out for for fellow Britons, five dollars. That's five coffees. That's five times helping the sun to go bankrupt. So uh, there you go. That's a that's a very British joke. All right. So all you British people who are listening to this, 
appreciate that joke. <laughs> the Sun is a tabloid owned by, I think it's owned by Rupert Murdoch, or if it's not, it's pretty much like that. And uh, yeah, they had a campaign to say, hey, buy the Sun, is just a coffee. And people were like, we'd rather have a coffee. Actually, I want a coffee now <laughs> and see you go into bankruptcy. It wouldn't be a, a conversation with Caleb if we didn't have some super specific London <laughs> thing. All right. <laughs> so I appreciate that. No. So anyway, uh, uh, We'll have all those, uh, all of the links will be on our show notes. Uh, and I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Caleb. Definitely go check out the Rollless Pod. Uh, you can join us on Discord where Caleb is, uh, he's one of our active members there. So if you want to have a conversation about Paris Gondo there, you can find him there as well. Uh, and as always, you can follow me at Vescar Tom on Twitter. That is, yes, Mandalorian Metal Tom on Twitter. Twitter. Uh, but you, you were into that before it was cool. Oh, I was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I was into this, and now I just look like a poser. Like you know, you know how we like when Twitter first came out. I was a stupid high schooler. I didn't know how to make a name. I wasn't worried about branding then. I'm like, oh, I like, I like these weird Star Wars books. So no, Bezcar Tom, you can follow me there. All right, the original. So uh, anyway, definitely go check out. Paris Gondo, the life. I'm gonna. I, I'm gonna. I always. It's so. It, I'm always mess. I always mess <laughs> up. The Paris Gondo, the life saving magic of inventorying. Uh, go check that out today. And as always, do not forget. If you're having fun, you're doing it. You're doing it right. right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show, and if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy, or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook or join our Discord where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.